Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the Superhero Ethics Podcast. And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 107, which begins with a credit from music supervisor Dave Jordan and a shot of Yggdrasil and ends with a Thor title shot. Joining us the show today and every day this week, we have Paul Hoppy, a.k.a. Zen Madman, who is a poker professional, writer, musician, martial artist, and frequent guest of mine on the Superhero Ethics and Star Wars Universe podcast. Um, Paul, this is normally when I ask someone, like, how they get involved in podcasting, which I know, but for our <laughs> listeners, like, how did you go from uh, just kind of, you know, enjoying talking about these movies to sharing your thoughts on them and, and being part of the kind of content creator world? I had this friend who wanted to do a podcast and was like, hey, do you want to talk about Batman? And I was like, sure, I'd like to talk about Batman. And then they were like, okay, can can you download this thing called Audacity and press record while we talk about Batman? And I was like, sure, I can download this thing called Audacity <laughs> and press record. And then I did. And then they released it as a podcast called Superhero Ethics. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm more, I, I appreciate the, the, the step-by-step history, but I want to mean in terms of like, what for you is it, um, <clears throat> just kind of transitioning. Why do I do it? Yeah, and sort of how, how it feels in terms of approach, approaching media differently, like just as a, as a fan to now like commentating on it. It doesn't feel that different to me. Like I, I've always commented on like everything. I don't know. I have a lot of opinions and just pressing record before commenting. Like there could be some greater level of professionalism to doing what I do or when, when we do it to get, yeah. Anyway, um, it, but I mostly just like, I like thinking about things and then I like talking about them and sharing that with, uh, with a broader audience just seems, Seems cool. Seems fun. You know, I like to put ideas out there and then kind of get feedback on them. And, um, you know, it's mostly just discussions that in terms of this type of media, you know, things that we've been having for years, decades even. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoy making things, too. I've just always enjoyed I mean, as my lengthy kind of bizarre bio attests to, I think, you know, I like making music, writing, um, making videos. I mean, I used to make poking, uh, poker coaching content, stuff like that. So it just it just feels very natural to me, honestly. Awesome. Cool. We'll get to hear more of your thoughts right after this. Do you want to chat about everything going on with like-minded Marvel fans over on Facebook? Well, we have just the place for it. It is our Facebook group, the Marvel Movie Minute Podcast Executive Lounge. Go to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute, click on the link, and it'll take you right there. All right, so once again, we're going to break it up. We're talking about the visuals we see and then some, some like, kind of like larger discussions that the credits we're seeing uh, open up and then get into the credits themselves. So first, like we finally see Yggdrasil. I think we still were seeing hints of it at the end of the last minute, but now it's very clear, you know, what we've been doing this whole time of kind of uh, moving through the cosmos like this. This scene was originally supposed to be at the beginning, as we talked about. Um, we talked about how kind of it's fun to watch, but like... Do you think it adds a lot to the movie to now get to be seeing this like cosmic view of how the realms fill together? Uh, we were talking about like it's kind of some of us more watching the credits and the, the, the animation, but kind of curious now that we have a sense of like exactly what this animation is doing, like how do you feel about it? It's interesting. It gives you a sense of like 
perhaps this is what a trip through the Bifrost feels like, although it, it feels like it can't just take a straight line from one place to the other. Like, it's got to go all over the place to, like, get you from Midgard to Asgard. Like, it's it's a loop-de-loop roller coaster ride is really what it seems like. But it also does give you a sense of how it could be kind of a very quick trip. Like, you know, within uh, you know a couple minutes, you're already there. And so it's, it's I don't know, it's kind of cool to see it all in action. Um, you know, I, I kind of think that's the intention. And I also think it's kind of neat to see a a cosmic view of how that idea of Yggdrasil could potentially actually be a real thing. Like I, I thought they did an interesting translation of saying this is this is what it could look like if if it really is this giant tree. It's like it you know it's like looking at the zodiac. It's like if you look at these stars that fit this way you can turn it into this shape. It's I, I like how how they kind of found a way to kind of do that here. Yeah, I, th- I feel like it's a fun journey. It, I, I think you described it really well in terms of feeling like we're almost going, maybe like maybe through the Bifrost or maybe through some other means of transportation, but kind of traveling through the realms. Um, I, I can't say that I totally like got it the first five times I watched it, Um, (laughs) you know, like it just, it, it like looks cool to me and I was looking at the credits, you know? So I, but I like that it is sort of that. I think if you're going to put something under the credits, having it be something that you can either watch and pay a lot of attention to if you want to, or you can kind of just sort of passively enjoy while actively looking at the names. I, I think that works well. You know, I think if it was something much more, overt and concrete it it might um be more distracting rather than sort of complimentary yeah i think there's definitely some movies where i've seen where there's actual sort of like universe building lore that is being told through it like you know often like the animation and things like that and so there's a sense of like if i watch the credits i'm missing this like actual part of the story and i i like that as you said it's this it's like it's interesting it's fun but it doesn't you're not going to miss anything if you don't see it and it is kind of cool at the end of it to see or end of this particular minute how i mean we really come right back to that upside down trip into asgard that we had that they did use earlier right. in the film so at least we get that part so we we have that direct connection to what we saw earlier in the film and so here we have as we were talking about it before kind of the second half of the top end credits it's a lot of the actor credits and, and andy you may I, I think you will probably have some more insight into this is there kind of like official union rules now or other kind of rules about like what credits have to go here versus just the scrawl of white on black is it just negotiated differently for every movie? Like, what what what's what goes into deciding those kind of things? I mean, there there are specific contracts with all of the these people that we're seeing here that they they get a, a credit at the start of the film, and the way that it's been done now is they shift that to the end here. I don't know honestly if there's a price difference. If if it's not going to be the beginning, it's going to be the start of the end. Then you pay us more. I'm not exactly sure, but it is something that is negotiated as part of their deal and their contract about where it's going to be. And I mean, it gets, I mean, it gets frankly difficult and ridiculous as you start dealing with multiple big actors. Like, I don't know how they managed to pull it off. I mean, kudos to Feige, a tip of the hat for the negotiations he had to have done with all of the different agents for all the big actors in, in like the films, like the Avengers, Um, because all of those actors, not only is it like, placement of the name like whose name is going to come first uh, but how big is your name compared to their name and it's uh, it, it gets crazy like on posters and everything and like whose face is the biggest and is it this percent bigger i mean it, it gets to a point where it's frankly 
like mind boggling how they kind of sort through it. Um, but then, then as Paul pointed out, like in, in our last minute, you get those like and or with or featuring or also starring types of credits. Those are for actors who otherwise would be the big name in the movie, uh, but are doing like a, a smaller part. And so in order to still get kind of, uh, you know, a form of top billing, they will take last billing in the form that we have here with and Rene Russo and, uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins as Odin. So that those and credits, it, it still is a, a, a way to say, OK, I'm not Chris Hemsworth. I'm not the lead of the film, but I'm still Anthony frickin Hopkins. So, right. you know, you're going to still give me some respect. So I'll get the <laughs> special credit at the end of all the names. I like that. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think this was with Rene Russo and Anthony Hopkins yeah, as Odin. Right. And yeah. like those are in the con- the language of the contract. Right. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's that like, if you can't have primacy, then you get like finality, you get like, yeah. okay, <laughs> this is, <laughs> you know, like on yeah. TV, you'll also get uh, often um, also starring or something like right. that, you know? Exactly. And, and, yeah. Yeah. So I, I get that with the actors. There's also, so some of the non-actor positions are credited during this. And is it, I, I haven't paid attention enough to know, like, is it, are you always going to see the director of photography and the music person? And like, are there certain, is it kind of the certain jobs that are always going to be here? Or is that again also contract to contract, movie to movie? I, I think there are some. It really depends on, on, you know, if they're in their union. Um, you know, like we'll see, like after some of them in here, we'll see, like for the casting agents, the CSA, uh, that they have. Um, I think, uh, when we saw Harris's name, he had the BSC for British Society of Cinematographers. And I think the editor had the ACE after his name. I'd have to go back to last minute's, um, credits, but it's, it, it definitely is like if they're in their unions. And I mean, on these big films, they always are. Then, yeah, the unions have very specific things saying, you know, you're going to be in the top credits. I mean, it's there's a little give, but I mean, l- largely it's going to be you know the the director, the writers, the uh, the top starring actors, uh, casting by music, visual effects, costume, editor, production design, director, photography, producers, um, and if it's based on something, um, that's generally the list of people that you'll end up seeing in kind of the top credits. With, I mean, you know, obviously there's exceptions here and there. It just really depends, but largely that's it. All right. Enough of my, like, I have curiosity about the, <laughs> the, the rules of the credits. Um, as we're getting the actors, I thought, um, you know, we've been going minute by minute about these different characters and having a lot of, like, in this minute, okay, where are we seeing this character on his journey? And I thought it might be nice, especially with Paul, to kind of just step back for a minute and, and to talk about the kind of the four major characters and, like, our overall sense of the of the arc that they have you know kind of just kind of wrapping up our discussions there as we end our time with these different characters and so first of all just starting with thor and i'll just ask you paul because you haven't gotten to chime in at all how do you feel like he's obviously the main character he's the protagonist and he it's very much a kind of hero's journey kind of story uh or you know the hero learning humility and then being a badass again uh (laughs) what's kind of your feeling on on the overall take of the the thor story we get I mean, it's a, it's a little hard to talk about Thor without talking about Odin, but I, I do enjoy how Thor goes from being this kind of like pompous, arrogant, um, kind of foolish, just warrior to being, you know, someone who embraces some level of self-sacrifice and caring about others maybe more directly than sort of like, oh, well, I'm going to be the king, so these are my people and like I'm going to, you know, protect them by 
starting a war. Uh, but, <laughs> but, and, and so I, I find Thor's journey pretty satisfying. When we get to Odin, I'll get back to the, the whole worthy thing. Like, it kind of tweaks me a little bit now. Um, I, the first viewing, um, you know, I just dug it, you know, I was just like, yeah, you know, Thor has this nice arc. Um, I, I find it a little unclear, like how powered he is when he's not like the mighty Thor, you know, when he doesn't have his hammer, he's like, Oh, this mortal body. I'm like, Oh, so is he just a dude? But he's, he's still like, soaked a couple hits from a van, you know? Yeah. Like he yeah, repeatedly right. got hit by a van and was like, okay. Um, so I, I think that's, they're a little kind of loose with that. I, I felt, but um, you know, the, the idea that his moment of self-sacrifice then was the reason he didn't have to sacrifice himself. And all of a sudden he's, he's mighty again is, is interesting. And it, it, I think it doesn't really undermine it because his intention was just like, look, just, just kill me, leave all these people alone. And that, and that was like a different way of approaching things, right? He wasn't just like, I'm just going to beat it with my fists. I'm going to surrender and try and kind of broker a peace, really, which was the opposite of what he, he was willing to do in the beginning. Yeah. So I feel like it works good as an origin story, even though he's like a thousand years old. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it because I – this is a movie where it's basically trying to do the we're going to introduce you to this character when he's a jerk, but by the end of the movie, we want you to like him and root for him and, and want to see him in more things. And that's it's always a bit of a hard balance. And, and Andy and I, we talked about how at the start, they kind of come close to uh, the line of am I still willing to root for this person or is he just a, 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 a terrible person? And the deleted scenes, I think, would have pushed him over. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. And you're right. I think, Paul, like that. there are definitely some parts of it that roll my eyes a bit or I have some questions about. But I think in terms of like getting you to a point at the end of the movie where you believe that he is now a lot more worthy and which, again, I have problems with that as well as with him, his story as mirrored by Loki's story. But at the end, I'm, I'm willing to accept him as a hero and I'm looking forward to rooting for him in his, his future things, which I think is like the main thing the movie had to do. You know, I, I love what they do with him in this film and that that journey that he has. I He's not going to have nearly as much of a journey in the second film, um, but it's fun to see kind of the, the family journey in the third film and then really where they go beyond as as he has this kind of continued exploration of his character. And and what I really appreciate later is how we do end up finding a way to kind of create, create a journey for Thor in in the dark world um, in a kind of a roundabout way. Um, it's it's a really interesting character that they do. And I, I, I think that there's an interesting element to the way that they really do tie Thor to the romantic story that he has with Jane, because that really does become such a key part of him, at least his character, as we see him progress in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because by the time, you know, he's he's, you know, pining for her and and can't get a, his thoughts out as he's as they're talking about the Infinity Stones. Like it's it's really interesting to see that that's that is kind of the direction that they really took with Thor. And I guess it's interesting to that aspect where this film I mean, we've talked so much in this show about the romantic comedy and just the romantic elements of the relationship between Thor and Jane. And I, I guess I, I, as I look at that, I, I find it, you know, fairly strong in the way that they developed that. I mean, I again, I wish that there had been more Jane, but I do like that they found a way to kind of really 
keep that romance alive for Thor over after all these uh, all these different stories. Yeah, I think it's a good way of putting it. And I, I I'll admit like that in many ways, my feeling on Thor and I feel like on Jane especially has been something that most changed. I used to be someone who joked that Kenneth Branagh and George Lucas had competed to see which one could most waste the talent of Natalie Portman. Um, and I, I feel like that, that now having done much more close analysis of this movie, it's, it's not close anymore. I feel like, you know, I think Natalie Portman could have done a lot more with that role, but I think she is quite good in the role. And, and there's a lot more chemistry between her and Chris Hemsworth than I think I saw the first time. I do think Thor works really well as like a man out of time kind of. Yeah. You know, where he's like, he's clearly not of this world in this time. And a lot of the comedy of the movie and, and kind of, you know, it's this big sweeping Shakespearean dramatic stuff. But then, you know, here you have the, the comedy aspect of that. And, um, and and I think that really forms a lot of why the movie works on the levels that it does. And I think that is, I mean, probably the part of the Thor character that Branagh establishes that that we see the most. You know, that like the Asgardian out of time when he's with the Avengers and other things. I mean, that, that continues to be a source of comedy all the way up to Endgame and even the What If uh, series. Yeah, true, true. Um, well, I was going to go to Loki next, but I think, Paul, maybe let's do Odin next. Like what? What's kind of the wrap-up of Owen's character and of Anthony Hopkins' performance? I thought Anthony Hopkins' performance was was good. You know, I mean, I, I don't have any complaints about it. Odin's a bad dad. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and I mean, we we get more perspective after Ragnarok, right? Seeing the backstory of Odin and, and Hela and like, oh, okay, he was a genocidal, you know, um, <laughs> uh, conqueror, and now he's like, oh, no, no, you can't do this. And he's basically, you know, shaking his finger at Thor for making the same mistakes he made. But it's like, well, that's that's got to be somewhat your fault, right? I mean, you had a thousand years to teach this kid. You were about to make him king. Like, mm, bad judgment. <laughs> like, you know, like, and, um, you know, does Odin have much of an arc here? I'm trying to think. Like, he, I, I guess, sort of, but it, it, Odin, I think, is one of my my least favorite characters on sort of reviewing. And, um, I mean, S.H.I.E.L.D., I think, ties Odin for, like, the worst in terms of, like, just being kind of, you know, he like, he wants to teach his son a lesson. And I guess there's supposed to be some sort of wisdom in that. But, like, you know, he sends him to Earth for, like, in this time of conflict and, with you know, Okay, it works out, right? It works out. But the idea, you know, of of worthy, like I I assume that the hammer's enchantment is based on Odin's judgment of who is or isn't worthy, which I think is um I don't know. I have some questions about that judgment. There's there there are a lot of elements with that that I mean, they just tied so specifically to the comic that it's like mm. they they just needed to find ways to bring a lot of those comic you know, kind of origin story elements into it. So it's here, but yeah, I, I get your point. It, it is interesting though. I, I do feel like I certainly have more appreciation for kind of Odin as a character um, watching it this time, especially kind of the whole story with like, I don't know. I, I feel like we found an interesting moment for Odin at the very beginning of the film um, when he doesn't kill Laufey. And it's almost like that becomes his turn and he, he shifts his thinking and he's no longer the, the, the war warmonger that he was with Hela. And now he's kind of shifted to a point where he's going to be a better king, a better father, at least try, even though he never really 
uh, never gets there. But it, but it's like it's almost like his story is really a tragedy, and and he's now witnessing kind of like the the choices his sons are making because of the poor fathering that he's done all this time, and there's not much he can do about it. You know, he's it, they're kind of past that point. Yeah, like I, I feel like he does go on a journey for ninety five percent of the movie. Uh, you know, you can hear Andy and I disagree about this from last week, so we don't need to go back into it. I feel like the way he treats Loki when Loki says, you know, father, I did this for you, and he just says no, uh, kind of undermines all of that in what I think is perhaps like almost child abuse levels of horrible things to say to a kid. Granted, he's, he's an adult. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, it, it's a very interesting character and, I can't not, as you brought up, Paul, I can't not think of it in terms of all we learn about him in, in Ragnarok as well. And, and so let's use that to go to, to Loki because I think one of the questions that, Andy, you and I have asked so often every time there's a big Loki scene is how much of this is Loki being genuine and and feeling all these things as he's trying to figure out who he is and where he fits in this world? And how much of this is him manipulating everyone around him because he's always thinking like five steps ahead? What, what's your kind of take, Paul, on that overall? Like, because I think the first time I saw this movie, I thought he was just always manipulating and he was never sincere. Watching it again, I've really changed on that. Where, where do you kind of fall? Uh, I guess I'm closer to your original perception. You know, I, I, I feel like Loki's pretty much just a villain here. Like, that doesn't mean he wasn't also a victim of, you know, of, of like a a kind of messed up childhood and and not having been told, you know, of his, you know, his birth circumstances or whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, from the very beginning, though, his his plan was to let some frost giants in to try and steal the, the casket, right? Which I don't know whether he just thought, like, those frost giants were going to get killed or whether he thought that they were going to escape with a thing and, like, you know, it, the, the word mischief, I think, undersells it, you know, and then he's like, yeah, and he, you know, he he goads Thor. I think he's clearly manipulating Thor into going to, you know, oh, I think you were right about everything. Like, no, you don't. Yeah. You, <laughs> you you want Thor to do something that Odin's going to get mad about and you want him to get punished and then maybe you get to be king, you know. So to me, yeah, I, I feel like in this he feels very much like. Um, you know, scheming, backstabbing, conniving uh, brother who who wants the throne. And I, I feel like there's great nuance in the performance, but in terms of the motives, they, they don't feel that complicated to me until at the end when he's like, see, I, I, I could do it. But like, yeah, OK, to what he thought would please his father was like genocide. Which like seems like clearly his dad was like, no, that's not what I want to do anymore, um, and that does raise the question: Did he know other stuff? But right, the word "anymore" is very important there. But yeah, absolutely, right, right. absolutely. But like you know, during Loki's lifetime, like Loki was a baby when when you know um, Odin hung up his like genocidal spurs, right? And <laughs> I I do think Andy makes a really good point about Lo- Odin that like he d- does this development in the. That was like in the intro, right? Like the intro. Yeah, um, yeah. And then like then we have this new Odin. But Loki would have grown up only with the new Odin. So unless maybe there was still something sort of seeping out that like he hadn't kind of totally changed really. Um, I don't know. It seems like Loki came up with this idea on his own. And it seems like a horrible idea, like a, a villainous idea, if you will. Well, he certainly goes down a dark road. Um I, I don't know. I feel like there's definitely a switch that gets 
flipped for for Loki largely when he learns that he's uh, a Jotun mm. and and learns his his background because before it seemed like you know he's trying to screw up Thor's you know big day he's he's you know there's there's definitely levels of of um, deviousness and mischief mischievousness that you know it's it's a little bigger than just you know um you know putting um something in your sister's uh food or something like that like i mean like he's doing something big like you know bringing frost giants in to steal the casket like he's do- he's doing big things but i i i don't i get i guess i feel like his mischievous really grows to villainousness over the course of this film and largely it's that switch with the um kind of learning his heritage because it just it it turns him and and the way that he starts shifting, I, I feel like he starts taking things uh, down a darker and darker road. And it all happens over, I mean, it's like four days total, this whole film. And so it's a very quick and sudden shift that he takes. And he just keeps, he keeps taking the thing that gives him more. And because he does, I think that keeps pushing him further down that road. Because, I mean, yeah, by the time he's ruling Asgard, he's really doing some, making some terrible decisions, largely because he now wants to destroy his real father and the Odins. Yeah, and, and I think I definitely agree about him being villainous. I mean, his plan is genocide, although this is a whole other discussion that I'm not, I think we can save for a different time or to not get into. But, like, I do think there's an element to which... Thor basically wants to kill all the Jotuns at the beginning of the movie. He just won't say that outright. Mm. And I, I feel like there's some extent to which Loki is kind of like saying the thing that everyone else wants to dance around. But but so I, it's another reason why I have a little more sympathy for Loki. But I, I definitely think you're right. that He is villainous. Absolutely. It's genocide he's pushing for. It, to me, I think I'm a little more though on the side of like – that I think the emotions that he's expressing, like, like I think, like, when, to his father, when he's so upset at his father, I don't think, I used to think that that was him wanting to kind of, like, push his father into the Odin sleep by upsetting him so much. I do now think he's genuinely that upset. I think he is genuinely in the shadow of his father, of his brother and all. But, yeah, it leads him to these very terrible places, to be sure. I agree with that. I never really thought that was manipulation. That that feels like kind of the most genuine conversation Loki ever has to me. Yeah, I think it's fair. And and I think that goes to very much the Shakespearean elements of this particular story. These big, grand, emotional uh, conflicts between family. I, I think that just very much feels that way. And yeah, I, I don't think that there's manipulation there. It just feels bombastic and, and big. And I, I, I love it. I'm here for those. And I, and I think it's one thing I, I think is that's where Odin's, a lot of Odin's journey is, is that he does feel real guilt, that he feels a responsibility mm. for both for how both Thor and, and Loki have turned out to some extent. For sure. Um, so let's just kind of go through the rest of the credits. It's a lot of the actors. Uh, and I want to do quick hits on a couple of them, um, starting with Paul, because um, I'm guessing you have some feelings of this. How do you think the talents of Idris Elba were um, utilized or not utilized in this movie? <laughs> Tragically. Um, I mean, I think he's great as Heimdall. You know, I know, did Will talk about him being the bouncer? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I guess Will's already covered that, uh, which I hadn't really thought about, but like, I can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I mean, I just think he's an amazing actor and um, 
I don't know. I, I think DC did well to scoop him up for the Suicide Squad. But, um, I mean, I, I love him. I, I think I saw him first in, like, Luther, actually. Um, and obviously, you know, he's amazing in The Wire and so many other things. But, um, yeah, it, I mean, I think he's good in the movie and all the movies. But it's just, I think he's capable of so much more. And so he's very much kind of, um, you know, having him in this... I mean, it's an important role, but it's fairly small through a bunch of movies, basically. Um, and it, it just feels, um, you know, I feel like they could have gotten more out of him. Not necessarily in the context of this movie. You know, I feel like he does well in this. But I, I, I think part of it is that um, he. Uh, this came after thinking about it more, a conversation with, with Will, which was really great. A lot of great stuff last week. Idris Elba is so good at showing passion and that can be any kind of passion, but especially like anger or just like that that very cool collected exterior right up to mm-hmm. the moment it breaks. Right. And so I feel like having him play this very stoic, I'm never really going to show emotion except very understated character. It just – yeah, it just, he's great in the role but loses so much of what he could do. See, metaphorically, he was frozen and he was in that stoic exterior and then he broke out of the <laughs> ice and then he, you know, sliced some frost giants in. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> I mean, at least he'll be able, you know, he does get a chance to return a few times, you know, uh, outside of just the Thor film. So at least, at least that, yeah, at least he was willing to kind of come back and kind of continue because he certainly talked about how he really hated it. He hated the costume that he had to wear. It was so big and uncomfortable and he didn't get to do much. So I'm glad that at least he kind of continued because, you know, by the time we get to him um, later, you know, in Ragnarok, uh, it's it's great to see that he was allowed to kind of do something a little more. So that that uh, makes me glad that he continued with it. Uh, another person we see in the credits is Clark Gregg, who obviously plays Agent Coulson. And we talked a little about this. I, I, I really love him in this movie because I think it's still very much the same character. But we saw him so much as kind of like the person who Iron Man just kicked around and mostly ignored and who was more capable than Tony would give him credit for. But I love getting to see him like without sort of fighting against, you know, Tony Stark. He really gets to be a lot more powerful character. And it's to me, like seeing both sides now really helps set up the character he gets to become in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, it's. It's great seeing him here. It's sad that he has so little to do in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole, but still, it's great to see him here. And obviously, he did have the TV run for a long time. So, yeah, I, I, I've really enjoyed his performances always. Um, this movie was the first time that I was going back and was like, oh, man, like S.H.I.E.L.D. is, is horrible. Like, they're this horrible organization, and, like, the realization that they're actually HYDRA is like, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, but, like, they are like they just steal a bunch of stuff from some scientists, and, like, you know, it, it's, it's not okay. Like, what S.H.I.E.L.D. does in this movie is not okay. Like, they're painted as, like, no, 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 they're, they're the good guys. It's okay. It's okay. I'm glad that we eventually got, you know, the Winter Soldier. Um, and, like, I mean, Clark Gregg, though, is he's a, he's... He's so good at that sort of understated, calm, things are going totally sideways or whatever, but he's just very low-key. Uh-huh. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, so another name, we, we, we talked about Kat Dennings a good deal last time. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård, who I, I first came to know him because he has a, a small run for a couple of episodes on one of my favorite TV shows, though, again, not aged well, uh, Entourage, where he plays this like very angry, very pretentious German director who just can't get along with our with our hero. 
and it took me a little while to get into seeing him in this. And eventually, though, it just with so many movies and seeing them a bunch. Now, to me, Stellan Skarsgård is this character enough that when I saw him playing Baron Harkonnen in Dune, it was another like, wait, no, that's not who you are. You're a nice guy. What's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> Any comments from either you on uh, Skarsgård in this movie? Uh, I, I've i always loved him. I, I'm trying to think like where I first saw him. Um, I mean, it's been ages like i mean back in the goodwill hunting sorts of days you know oh yeah um but i but even before that i mean hunt for red october when he was one of the captains so i mean he's he's been around for a very oh, long time right. and, yeah yeah and so you know i i feel like i've seen him just forever but it's just what he's one of those faces that it wasn't until probably goodwill hunting that he clicked as somebody that i instantly would recognize and be able to name um, and then because then he would pop up at stuff like Ronin. He was in Ronin, which is a fantastic mm. film. He was in Deep Blue Sea, which is not a fantastic film, but <laughs> still fun, you know. And so, I mean, he's just one of these people who's just in everything. And I mean, yeah, you want to see him play bad. Look at uh, David Fincher's version of uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I mean, you know, he's just um, all over the place, the sorts of the sorts of projects he does. And so I just love that he's so busy just doing so much stuff. And I also love that you pointing that out reminds us that like especially for american filmmakers if you have an if you have a european accent that isn't french english or italian or maybe spanish yeah you can play scandinavian you can play german you can play russian cuz it's you know it's a <laughs> eastern central northern european accent so whatever right. you want to do <laughs> exactly so yeah true. i mean here he actually gets to play you know a scandinavian right and that be that's actually relevant to the plot um, which which I, I like. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed him in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think Goodwill Hunting is the, the film that I first connect him with. Um, but yeah, I, I, th- I think here he lends this, he, he kind of is the sort of avatar for the audience, like skeptic of sort of all this kind of, you know, magic and myth. I think, and um, you know, I mean, the the scientists three are all kind of that, but he's sort of like the the scully of them. I think, yeah, you know. Um, Whereas Jane's more the the Mulder. Did we talk about Jane? No, we should. Yeah, no, she was one of the others I was going to bring up. I think we somewhat talked about her in terms of the love interest and the like, but uh, you know, in the first minute on Monday. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about Natalie Portman and her portrayal of Jane. Yeah, honestly, she's one of my favorite things in the movie. Like, it, it, it's her and Stellan Skarsgård and Kat Dennings. And, like, that for me is what really makes the movie. And I, I really enjoyed Natalie Portman's performance the first time. I remember when you were saying that, you know, you, you were talking about whether um, Kenneth Branagh or George Lucas, like, wasted her talents more. I was like, what? Like, yeah. I thought she was fantastic <laughs> here. I, I think she makes it feel very alive. I think the relationship between her and Thor is very powerful, but I also think she's very convincing as a scientist. Um, I do wish, and I think this is less Kenneth Branagh and maybe more the screenwriters and the story writers, but like, I wish they'd given her a little bit more of that, although that's maybe a larger complaint going forward in the MCU or like the last two lines of the, the you know, the scripts like we mentioned last week, but, um, but yeah, I, I think she has great chemistry and interaction with like kind of all the different characters. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've loved her from like the professional and, yeah. um, was it beautiful girls? I think was like yep. shortly after that. Yep. Um, yep. and just, you know, not the star Wars prequels, but yeah. <laughs> pretty much everything else she's been. And I think she's fantastic. And, and I don't think this, this was an exception. 
Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, she's, that's fair. she's so good. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, you brought up a great point. The fact that there was such a, just a kind of a fantastic little bit of magic that I think that they captured with creating the scientist three, like the fact that we have such an interesting trio with Jane, Eric and Darcy hanging out together. And it's, I don't know. It's a little disappointing that we only get to see that one other time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because, uh, I, I, gosh, I just, I really enjoy watching the three of them interacting together and how cool would it have been if they had found ways to kind of continue that. Um, so, but uh, I, I do love her. I think she's a fantastic character. I'm so excited to see Thor Love and Thunder and to kind of watch the story of Gore the God Butcher and see really kind of how they bring all that together. So it's going to be... It's going to be a big one. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that and having her back. So there's a lot more we could talk about, but I want to, again, wrap up the minute. But I, I want to make sure we talk about two credits that are non-actors that we get in this minute. Uh, the music supervisor, Dave Jordan, and the casting, which is Randy Hiller and Sarah Halley Finn, uh, both CSA, which I'm not sure what that stands for. We can talk about in a second. Casting Society of America. Got it. Thank you. Because uh, I just, like, the mute. well... With the exception of a song that's going to play <laughs> yes. later this week, which I have some very serious, like, why moments, the music in this is so good. And I I don't know how much the music supervisor actually does, but it sounds like supervision. Like, that's a lot of the oh, – like, I just always felt so often, Andy, this season, we were talking about how the music so perfectly matched the beat of what was happening in the scene. Well, I mean, yeah, and Dave Jordan, I mean, he is the music supervisor for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, you know, we talked about him on Iron Man, and he's been involved uh, even in The Incredible Hulk. Like, our casting, uh, the casting uh, directors that we'll also be talking about here have largely been involved in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but they didn't work on Incredible Hulk. Whereas, I mean, even that he worked on. And so uh, all of the music in the films, I mean, Dave Jordan has been involved with. And it's, I mean, it's a complicated it really is like dealing with the music rights and negotiating with the artists and just getting all of the different deals sorted out. And so it's a lot of work. Uh, having done that before for a project that I worked on, it's it's tedious and uh, exhausting trying to kind of negotiate between all the different artists. Um, so I, I can imagine on these big scale projects, the complexities of, of getting the rights for the particular songs. It's not that hard in this film. We only have the two songs featured. So it's, it's not a lot of work, but still, I mean, you still have to negotiate for a, a film that costs millions of dollars because you know, the people who wrote those songs are going to say, Oh, well, this is for Thor. Well, you know, we want a chunk of change for it. So. And in terms of the casting, um, you know, I, as we talked about, like Kenneth Branagh, he pretty much picked, um, you know, he had a good relationship with Anthony Hopkins and with Tom Hiddleston. But this is really kind of the movie where where Chris Hemsworth was was discovered. Some of the other like, you know, parts, I just think with the exception of Idris Elba that we've talked about, and that's more not that he's bad for the part, it's that he's misused. I, I just think I, I don't think I can't look at a character and be like, that's the wrong wrong actor to play that part. Sarah Finn, uh, I I think that her mother was also a casting uh, director, and so she's been in the industry for a long time and has pretty much been casting the Marvel Cinematic Universe since Iron Man. And and you're right, it's not necessarily um, the big names, although she's the one who will then negotiate and work with the agents to kind of get stuff figured out. Um, and yeah, I, I think that she has brought a lot to the Marvel Cinematic Universe by finding just the right people to come on board. And and Randy Hiller, uh, less so, uh, although certainly was big busy through phase one, 
uh, that was it as far as in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But still, I, I think it's important, you know, just like the Harry Potter films, like you, you wouldn't have eight films if they didn't cast so perfectly in that first film. And here it's the same thing. Like Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark, you know, I mean, Edward Norton, I mean, there were obviously some issues with that. And again, these two weren't involved in that film. Um, but it, it's interesting to see how they did find people. I mean, you think of Captain America and, and Chris Evans. I mean, it's it's perfect fit. It comes right to mind. So you can see how finding not just the big parts, but all of those little parts, too, and, and finding just the right people to kind of fill them in. I mean, it's 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 fantastic what they've been able to kind of accomplish with the with this franchise. All right. Well, I've once again completely failed at keeping us from not going on too long. But here, like, it wasn't like any one tangent we spent 10 minutes on. There's just a lot to talk about as we're kind of wrapping this all up. Um, but Paul, um, we're going to hear a lot more from you this week. Um, we got to talk a little about your fiction. Talk more about your poker work in terms of, um, just like, if, if someone's new to poker or wants to learn or either to get a better playing or, or just to understand poker, like, what, what are they going to find in terms of your content? I make videos on, on YouTube, uh, Zen Badman Poker that are basically, I mean, I'll t- I'll do hands and um, explain kind of how I played them, why I played them that way, maybe how I misplayed them. I, I like to kind of take things that um, I have done and sort of show my learning process and use that as a way of kind of showing people how they can go about studying their own hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's great content. Definitely worth checking out. Um, as always, thank you so much for being a guest here. Andy, thank you so much for all you're doing. You're going to have to do all the editing for this, which I definitely apologize for. Um, but so glad you're doing that. And to our fans, you're what makes this work. Thank you so much and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Mm-hmm.